Welcome to RevOps Corner, where we talk about how B2B SaaS companies scale through revenue operations by interviewing amazing guests and sharing what we see in the trenches every day here at Union Square Consulting. Everybody, welcome to RevOps Live number 12. As Kevin had, uh, had alluded to, we're still getting this dialed in, but today's topic is leveraging data to coach the sales team. And we have our very special guest. I guess I was very excited to have today because I'm a huge fan, Kevin Dorsey. Thank you very much for joining us. Hell yeah, pumped to be here, my man. Long time coming, long time coming. Let's, let's, let's make it happen here, dude. Yeah, we've engaged on LinkedIn so much. You share so many great tips. Um, I'm always commenting on it and I'm excited to ask you some deeper questions today. Um, for our audience, Kevin's got 10 years of experience in sales leadership. He's the practice lead for revenue leadership at Winning by Design. Um, he was previously the VP of Inside Sales at Patient Pop. Before that, the head of sales development enablement at Service Titan. Before that, the VP of Sales at Snack Nation, and is an advisor and mentor to five at 500 startups and many, many other startups that are all listed on his LinkedIn. Um, so again, thanks for joining us, Kevin. I'm excited to dive into this with you. Let's do it, my friend. Let's rock. So I'm Eddie Reynolds. I'm the founder and CEO of Union Square Consulting. I have Sarah Ra, who is our event producer with me here today. Sarah, thank you for organizing all of this for us. And we even have our video editor, Rio Tafoya, on in the background as well, which I wasn't expecting. But uh, Rio, so guys. excited for you to see how the sausage is made on the front end. All right. So we're a revenue operations uh, as a service consulting firm. And I'm going to start with my thoughts on today's topic just a bit of a monologue, pass it over to Kevin for him to do the same. And then I'm going to dive into some questions that I have for Kevin. And as I said, if you guys have questions, throw that into the chat. We'll call on you unless you'd like to reserve those questions for the very end. Once we're done, we can return, we can turn the recording off. So this won't be posted to the podcast or uh, Apple, Spotify, et cetera. And you can ask a question a little bit less publicly. Anyway, without further ado. So when we talk about using data to coach the sales team. The battle that I'm fighting here is that so often sales coaching involves telling reps to make more calls, book more meetings, and generate more pipe. And in my mind, this only helps unmotivated reps. It doesn't help people that are already working really hard and trying their best to hit quota and succeed in their role. Um, what we need to do here is to show them how to do something. We need to go into the data and specifically find out where their gap is. What step in the sales process are they struggling with? And how does that compare to their peers? How can we share tangible tips with them that are relevant for their sales cycle to help them improve one step at a time versus just telling them to work harder when they may already be working as hard and as many hours as they possibly can. In line with that, I think it's really important to think about how we replicate success. And Kevin, you've talked about this a lot as well. Um, but who's the best at closing? Who's the best at each stage in the sales cycle? Who's the best at generating pipe? Who's the best specifically at outbound cold calling? And what are they doing differently than the individual rep in question? At Salesforce, when I was an account executive there, the answer to this question wasn't more calls, more meetings, or even more deals. The top reps that I worked with at Salesforce were actually making the fewest calls on the team. They had the fewest number of meetings, and they even had probably the fewest number of deals in their pipeline. 
Instead, they had a lot more call connects. So they're spending a lot of time actually talking to customers and prospects and not just making calls. They had engagement with higher level decision makers. And as a result, they were doing bigger deals and closing them faster. They were spending more of their time on deal strategy and figuring out how to close these big strategic deals versus hammering out cold calls. And when they were talking to somebody that wasn't interested, they walked away much more quickly than other reps. And you could see this in the data in the CRM, and you could also see this in hearing them talk to customers and prospects. Um, let's see, what is the third point I wanted to make here? Another thing I saw at Salesforce that worked really well was using the data in Salesforce to reinforce the sales training. So if you think about this, there's so many sales reps that will go to a sales training once a year. They sit there for a day or two and try to digest a bunch of information. And then they go back to the office and forget all about it. Studies show that most training is forgotten about. And the reason for this is just very difficult to learn 20 different best practices and then just walk back to the office and implement it on your own. At Salesforce, when I was working there as an AE, they took a very different approach. They leveraged the data in the system to actually reinforce the training. And so when you would literally open up the opportunity page layout, layout in Salesforce, you would see the specific questions being asked that were part of the training that we were signed up for. In addition to this, the reports, the feedback from management, et cetera, et cetera, would leverage this data, the questions being asked in the app, as well as the answers that I would provide as an account executive to reinforce that training and to not only coach reps, but also for the entire team to collaborate on deals to try to get them closed. And as a result, it's really impossible to forget the training. I mean, to take this a step further, I didn't go to that training until probably six months, nine months into my role. By the time I got there, I'm like, wow, I already know probably 70% of this because it's just become a daily habit from leveraging the application and looking at the reports and going into one-on-ones with managers and team meetings, talking about the same thing again and again and again until it's committed to muscle memory. Well, anyway, that is my spiel. And I'd love to turn it over to you, Kevin, to share your thoughts on this. Yeah. I mean, I think people get it confused all the time, right? It's like a lot of leadership, they focus just on the result, right? They say, hey, we need more revenue. We need more pipeline. To me, that's re results-based language, right? If it was just as easy as telling people the results that we wanted, we wouldn't need leadership. I could lead everybody's team in a Slack channel. Hey, y'all, more revenue, more pipeline, and they'd go get it, right? So more and more, not, not to the level it needs to be, but more and more leaders are starting to rely on data. Right, they start to get to the metrics, right? Of like, okay, well, if I want more revenue, what metric has to improve, right? Like I've said this so many times, you, you can't improve a result without improving a metric. So what metric has to get better? Is it close rate? Is it velocity? Is it connect rate? Is it activity? Whatever it is, right? We have to identify that metric, but the metric is still not coaching. And I think this is where people are now getting stuck even more is, all right, well, I identified the metric, and they think they've done a good job there. Hey, we have to bring your close rate up. Okay. How would I do that? Right. Oh, we need to bring your connect rates up. Okay. How would I do that? We need to spend less time on unqualified deals. Okay. How would I do that? The metric just tells you where to look. To change a metric, you have to change. And this is my management philosophy. It's what I've built my teams using. To change a metric, you have to change a B, P, or S, which is a behavior process or skill. So to your earlier point, right, the metric should be setting up the training, right? It should be setting up the training. What metric is low, that's what sets up the training, but the training has to address a behavior, 
a better process or is it a skill that needs to be developed to improve the metric, right? So what I've been preaching, especially over the last year is metrics are the leading indicator to results. Behaviors, processes, and skills are the leading indicator to metrics, right? I don't need to wait three months for the close rate to go up to know if someone's getting better at closing. I can identify the behaviors, the processes, and skills behind that metric, and I can know within a call. I can know within a week whether or not someone is improving, and that's where I try to focus more and more, right, is the specific skills and behaviors behind the metric to drive it. So that's where I'll wrap my monologue, and we can get into the, the nitty-gritty here. I love it. So I've got a bunch of questions outlined, but what I love doing in these interviews is diving into, you know, some of the things that are shared in these monologues. So let's dive into that a little bit more. And my first response to what you said is I absolutely agree. And even as I was writing out my comments and questions for today, I was worried about, I think the issue with a lot of folks in RevOps is we'll over-index the data. And we look at like all of these numbers and all these conversion rates and sales is both an art and a science. I think the data can give you an indication as to what's working and what's not, but there's also an art form there. To your point, there's a behavior, there's a process, there's a skill. Not everything, not everything shows up in numbers. And also data is not just numbers. There's quantitative data, which is numbers, and there's qualitative data. Things like what's your closed plan? What are the risks of this deal? Things like that, that you can actually even ask in the CRM and you can generate actual data but it's not a data point like a conversion rate. It's a data point that tells you, does this rep understand the process, our, our sales process in order to close a deal? But I think it's really interesting what you shared. And now I've forgotten the question I wanted to ask after I droned on. Um, but I think I'd be curious if you could go in a little bit deeper on how you do that. When you identify a specific metric and you sit down with a rep and try to coach them on that, how do you go about that? And how do you specifically reinforce that learning over the course of time? Because you just alluded to, okay, I can see the results in a week or two weeks if they're making improvement in their discovery calls, for example. Could you dive a little bit deeper there? Yeah. So for every key metric, right? And really, you know, you can track hundreds of things. There's like nine or 10 key metrics that most orgs need to focus on to improve their results, right? You're going to have close rate. You're going to have deal size. You'll have deal cycle. You have stage progression. You have pipeline value, right? What's the value of it? $100,000, million dollars. Pipeline volume, how many opportunities are in my pipeline, right? And then pipeline, call it age. Then you get into pipeline metrics, number of calls, number of emails, connect rates, conversion rates, email open rates, email response rates, email sentiment, number of leads worked, number of touches per lead, lead and spacing per touches. Everyone listening real quick, your revenue problems are living in what I just said. For 90% of companies, if you are not hitting the revenue marks that you want to, it's because one of those metrics or multiple of those metrics are off. So once I've identified those key metrics, I also built a tool for my teams, Amanda, which was called the Issue Diagnosis Checklist. So for every single one of those metrics, behind it is a checklist of what to look for. So I've identified that for Eddie, it's connect rate, right? He's just not speaking to enough people. Well, you go into the Issue Diagnosis doc and there's the checklist for connect rate. When is he calling? Is he calling cell phones or landlines? Is he sending good emails? 
What are his email open rates? Because emails affect connect rate. Are they leaving voicemails? What is the scripting with gatekeepers or office managers? It was a checklist of what to look for to diagnose, right? So the old cliche um, quote, right, is prescription without diagnosis is malpractice, right? So the first step is diagnosing, well, what is wrong? And then that actually builds the coaching plan. And the beauty of it is once that tool is built, the rep can use it as well. So going into that one-on-one, -on -one, this is a very different conversation with my teams. It's not me sitting down with you, Eddie, and going, hey, your connect rate's low. Let's talk about how we can bring this up. First of all, you identified connect rate was low because you had to fill that out in your one-on-one -on -one doc. And then second, you went into the issue diagnosis and went through to self-identify, to self-diagnose, where might I be missing? And the manager's doing the same thing so that when we connect, now it's both of us saying, yeah, actually, you know, I've been calling mostly in the afternoons. Maybe I should switch it to the mornings, right? So those are the things that you go into. But then the reinforcement, to your point, is the ongoing practice, right? And we'll get into plans here, right? Because most people, you know, will talk about like, all right, cool, let's bring it up. Well, no, 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 no. How? How are you going to bring it up? Well, I'm going to make more calls in the morning. How? Well, I'm going to, I'll block it on my calendar. Great. Well, when will you have your leads ready? Well, I should then block time in the afternoon to have my leads ready for the next day, right? You have to actually map out when things are going to occur, who's going to do it and how to do it. So that's the key is the issue diagnosis. And truthfully, y'all, everyone listening, if you are a leader, especially, you already have an issue diagnosis checklist. It just lives in your head. You need to document it, right? If I came to you and said I had a low close rate, there's probably seven or eight things that you would look for. Right. And then the best way to build the issue diagnosis is also to take the opposite approach, which is what do my best do? Who has the highest close rate on the team? How do they run discovery? Well, there's my issue diagnosis checklist, because if you're not doing what the best on the team does, I already know what the diagnosis is. Right. So that's how you make a process around this. I love that. And I've thought of at least two questions I want to ask off the back of that. First thing is I'm curious, especially considering the fact that this is a RevOps show, where you think the responsibility lies between the rep, the manager, and RevOps to uncover some of those insights. So specifically, you talk about one of those conversion rates or connect rates, and then you're, you're drilling deeper. And I'm always an advocate in RevOps that it's not our job just to give somebody a report. Hey, here's your conversion rate. Like we should be going layers deeper to uncover the actual insight that tells the business what's actually happening. At the same time, I think that's also the responsibility of leadership. And to your point, it's also the responsibility of the rep. Where do you stand in terms of how to like divide and conquer and who's responsible for what there? So, and I don't know if this will be a controversial take or not, but you know, it's my style to, to share how I try to do things. I don't believe that RevOps can actually provide the insight. I believe they can provide the patterns, right? Because insights tend to come from behaviors, processes, and skills. And unless RevOps is getting to that level of granularity, right, they can identify the pattern. Here's what we're noticing. Here's who are the positive outliers. Here's from a high level what we're seeing, right? I believe RevOps is responsible for the pattern recognition, right? And the levers that can be pulled. The insights, that tends to come from behaviors, right? And so that to me is the manager, the VP, and the rep own that 
side of it, right? I want my RevOps team bubbling up again from the high level, the patterns, the metrics. What are you seeing? Hey, our close rates are slipping. And we see that we're pitching way more to this industry. That's a pattern. We're pitching more to this industry. The insights will then have to come from the managers and the reps to understand why are we pitching to that industry more, right? What's shifted in our behaviors, our processes, or skills? So that's how I look at it. RevOps, to me, is there to help identify the patterns, to identify the levers, to identify what could be happening. But insights is generally going to come from the manager or the rep. I love it. And like always, as I always comment on your posts on LinkedIn, I agree and disagree. Um, but I think it's really a perspective. And I think what you shared is really, really apt. Um, without responding, I'm going to go to my next question because I think it just drills deeper in here. You posted recently on studying greatness, on looking at what the best are doing on your team. Um, could you dive in deeper to that? And first, I would ask, if you're advocating that we study what the best reps are doing, it seems obvious. Why do you think more leaders aren't already doing this? It's counterintuitive, honestly, of what we've been taught about leadership, right? Leaders fix things. Leaders fix things. We are fixers. Most leaders are fixers. What's broken and we fix it. So we've been trained to pay attention to what's not going well, far more than what we've been trained on what is going well. It's just a shift in dynamic. And especially in sales leadership, and I'm sure you see this across the board, no one's taught how to do this. So most of us lead the same way we were led. Well, what did our leader focus on? What was good or what was bad? They tend to focus on what's bad. When you become a leader, 99% of the time, they point your leader points out, here's what's broken. I need you to go fix this. Here's the underperformers. I need you to get them up or out, right? So truthfully, I think a lot of this comes down to no one's thought to do it, right? It's just not what they are held to. And you know, talk about systems and processes every single quarter, every quarter, I assigned a metric to a manager to study greatness. As the VP, this is built into my manager cadence. Eddie, this quarter, you've got close rate. Go study Julia and Jenny and Quentin. They've got the highest. What is it they do differently? Davion, you have connect rates. Crystal, you have highest activity. You like I was assigning it out and you had to report back what you learned every single quarter on what the best were doing. That was built into my manager cadence, right? With my managers. It's a great answer. And so going back to your previous answer, I would make the case that RevOps should be doing some of that as well. Let's take the close rate, right? And I can see an argument both ways. I can see an argument that that's the manager's job. If they don't understand how their reps are closing deals, then well, I mean, what else are they doing as a manager? But also RevOps, if you're trying to architect a revenue engine and keep in mind, managers are very busy, is there not value in RevOps going and first identifying those reps that have the best close rates? That's a, that's a data exercise. Yep. And then going and interviewing them and asking, what are you doing? Like, here's what I'm seeing in the data. What's happening here? What's happening here? And then taking that to the manager and saying, this is what I've uncovered so far. Let me make your job easier. You're super busy. You're trying to hire two new reps. You're trying to coach this one rep up or out. Here's what's working with your best closers. But I'm curious, like how, what you think about that and the best way to approach it. So one, haven't really seen ops get to that level of granularity, but two, you don't interview. You do not interview. And again, this is where I don't always know if RevOps has 
what's the word? I'm, there's not skill is not the word. It might be insight, but you can call me on it as as we go through it. To know you have to observe to figure these things out. You know this damn well, dude. Ask a top performer what they do differently. Do they know? That's fair. It depends right. on the top performer, but I see your point. Right. So you just don't like to pick lines, right? Eh, it depends. Maybe. Agree to disagree. Whatever. I just like to okay. debate everything. Sorry. That's just my personality. And that's, that's, that's why you're in trouble now, because I will too, but I will debate, debate it, right? Because you got to talk about like living this, living this. You go and interview a top performer. That is one data point versus if I were to assign this to RevOps, you're listening to 20 calls. You are reviewing the transcripts for 30 calls. You're pulling up every single one of their deals to look at who they spoke to, how do they speak to them, all of that. If RevOps 1 has the capacity, that's the first, right? RevOps teams tend to not be that big either. But then two, can they tell the difference? Can they listen to those calls and pick up on what it is that rep is doing differently the way a sales manager can, right? So that's where I start to see the gap a little bit is, do they have the sales acumen level to say, this is how this person's selling differently? Whereas to your earlier point where I think RevOps comes in heavily is who are they selling to that's different? What industry are they selling to that is different? How many touches do they make that is different? All those quantitative things, that's where I think RevOps really comes in, right? But I don't know how many RevOps teams you've worked with that even have the capacity to do the exercise that I just talked about across all the key metrics across an org? Well, a lot of times when I talk about these things, I'm talking in an ideal state, right? And you got to keep in mind that a lot of where this comes from is a combination for me, always being like a mathematical operations focused kind of person. I was AE number one at a company that built their product on top of Salesforce. Um, and then I worked at Salesforce and Salesforce had a lot of this stuff in play. And so I could use uh, a guy named Brandon, who was the top performer on my team. And you could literally just look at the data. And part of this is RevOps building that data structure to see like, okay, they tracked, like when you made a call, was it a call to power or was it, I don't remember what it was called, but a call to somebody else. And you could mm -hmm. just literally see right on the dashboard that like the top performers were always calling to power and the folks that were not performing were too scared to do that. Um, you could go and look at the size of his deals. You could also look at the specific roles in the organization that he was covering. Salesforce is such a broad product that a big difference is, is are you just talking to the, like the Salesforce admin, the VP of sales? Or are you talking to the head of sales, service, marketing, COO, CFO, CEO? These are quantitative data metrics. But to take it a step further, and I see your point because I can recognize that a lot of RevOps folks maybe wouldn't be proficient at this because I've been in sales. So it's a little easier for me to think this way. Um, but if I were to like talk to Brandon and say, how is it you're getting in front of so many executives? At least I can tell you what Brandon would have said, because he's literally said this to me. He's like, oh, I go and I bring you know cupcakes in to the Salesforce admin and I make this person love me. And then they set me up with a meeting with the CEO. It's like, okay, cool. But I also recognize what you're saying that there, there's a line there that you cross where you get beyond the skill set of RevOps. Um, and it's definitely in the realm of leadership. That's, that's where, where I'm going, because all of those things you mentioned earlier, those are still all what's. What is he doing? Getting to power. How to do it? I don't generally see RevOps coming in with the actual how to do it. And the how is the actual diagnosis, right? It's like, hey, how do we do this? And the prescription which I'm sure we might also get into is RevOps making prescriptions is very different than leadership making prescription and how that is communicated, how that is conveyed and how it is implemented. 
Yeah, I think that these are all all great points. Um, so let's go even deeper into this. So, um, and I'm going off a post you posted a few weeks ago where you were talking about this. And one of the things you mentioned specifically was scripting. So could you walk us through your process to, to look at scripting from a data perspective, as well as just a qualitative perspective to understand how well a rep is saying what they need to say and saying it the way they need to say it? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's where, you know, call call recordings, call transcripts, all the tools out there come in to be able to do that. Because eventually, and I still don't know why this is so controversial is the wrong word, like so rare. It's like, eventually your salespeople have to talk to someone. And as much <laughs> as you want to sit behind dashboards or sit behind spreadsheets and that eventually they are talking to someone and that is where the deals happen or do not happen. And people do not spend nearly enough time in that, like nearly enough time of like, what are we actually saying on these calls? Right? So same idea, right? Is um, if I'm going into a new company, I'm going like, all right, who are my top performers? I break down the sales cycle or sales process into the key elements, right? Qualification, discovery, demo, deal navigation, stage progression, closing, negotiation, right? Like I break those down and then I'm listening to those segments of the calls, right? But more than listening, I'm listening to what they get the prospect to say. So that is my first step is I'm listening. What do they get the prospect to say? What are the commonalities in the prospect's responses? How can I build a process to get them there, right? But it's very repeatable, right? And this is what people seem to forget. Right? You mentioned this dude, Brandon. I bet you a lot of his calls, and I would truthfully, I put numbers, and this is me going through this and actually measuring this. 80% of his calls, he ran pretty much the same way. It was that extra 20% that he could pull in or adapt. But 80% of the times, he's asking the same questions. 80% of the times, he's getting some of the same responses and working through it. And so I'm going through this, but like my trick here is I actually listen to very few calls. I read calls. The only reason you need to listen to a call is for tone. Once I know somebody's tone, I don't have to listen. I can read. And that actually lets me get through significantly more calls, right? Because if you want to listen to a one hour demo, it's going to take you one hour to listen, speed it up to two X. Okay. Now it's at 30 minutes you know how quickly I can read that call and skim and command F and look for phrases and things of that nature. So that's what I'm doing is I start with the disco call. What am I best doing disco? Perfect. That is now my scorecard. What am I best do in the demo? Perfect. That's now my demo scorecard. What am I best do when it comes to pride? Like I'm just building it out and then looking for places of where can I script it? Right. Where can I script it? What are the commonalities and going from from there? Because that's what's hilarious. Right. You know, everyone has a script. Like we talk about this issue diagnosis. Everyone has a script. Everybody does. They just haven't written it down. Right. When you go to a rep and say, how do you handle this objection? You're literally asking for their script. When you go to your manager and say, hey, I have this big call coming up. Like, how do I like, you know, use this promo? You're asking for the script. Right. Because what I always joke with people about is anyone listening. You know, just ask yourself these questions. Have you ever seen a movie? Have you ever watched a TV show? Have you ever listened to a song on the radio? Have you ever seen a performance done live, like a play? Guess what, y'all? All of it was scripted. 
It was all written down. It was the artist's job to make it come alive. So scripts get hate when they shouldn't. It's the artist, a.k.a. the salesperson, who doesn't do a good job of bringing it to life. That is the problem. Well, let me geek out with you on movie scripts for a moment because I just finished reading a couple books on it. Not only does a movie have a script, it has a formula. There's a very famous book called Save the Cat by Blake Snyder. And he breaks down literally that there is a midpoint in a movie. And that if your script is, I forget what it is, like 120 pages, it literally needs, you need to have the midpoint, which is a very specific thing on page 60. And he writes about how like all of these uh, writers will get off track and they'll realize the movie won't work because they're not following a formula. And the reason that formula works is because human beings want to see a story. A story is literally taking us through these emotional ups and downs. And even something as creative as writing a movie script or a book comes down to a formula. What you fill into those, like, those blocks, that's where the creativity lies. But nobody comes out and says, oh, I'm going to create a great movie by just like doing it totally differently. And in the book, they talk about how Memento is supposed to be this example that breaks the mold. And he's like, nope, even if you look at Memento, it still follows this play. It's rearranged a bit, but it still mm -hmm. follows this formula. Yeah, no, there, there is a formula. There is a recipe, right? And our, I firmly believe our job in leadership is to identify. That is our job. We are here to identify what's going wrong. We're also here to identify what's going well. What is that recipe? What is that formula? Now, there are certain elements that apply company to company that are just foundational, but there's going to be certain elements that are different per company. And if you can identify it, that's the whole foundation, right? That's, it's beautiful. You can go ask a lot of leaders. It's hilarious. Okay. You can go ask a lot of sales leaders right now, what's broken, and they will give you all the answers. If you ask them what works, they may not have an answer. Think about that for a second. What works? What has been proven to work in your org, in your system? And they'll say things like, well, working qualified deals. Okay. Do you know how to do that? Like, have you actually identified how to do that in your org and how to do it best? Right. It's, it's actually really interesting, man. Like you, you go ahead and ask them, what's the best way to do all this? And either they won't have an answer or their answer will not be based off anything. It'll just be based off the opposite of what's broken. It's just crazy to me what you're saying. And it's like, I don't deny it. But even after 20 years of being in sales, of closing deals, of working with salespeople, working with sales managers, working in RevOps, I still struggle with that because to me, it's just such a natural thing to say, like, there's a mathematical formula to get to our end target and we need to do A, B, and C. And so, okay, like which of the things that we're doing today are working? It's like, people say, well, how do I identify my ideal customer profile? It's like, well, what customers do you have that you'd really like to have more of? Right. And I think that's, that's why we all, these conversations are fun and whatever else is like, you mentioned it earlier, right? You come from a place of ideal. I come from a place of reality of like what's actually happening out there and what's actually working. There's always an ideal. There's always a best case way to do it, but the vast reality, and you know it, you're in it, you're living it. They don't have answers to these questions. The basic idea of knowing how to work backwards from a number, they don't have, right? The ability to diagnose what's causing something, to use quantitative and qualitative, it is not common at all out there, man, at all. Yeah. And I think that it's because I just grew up as like a math guy and that's not normal for sales salespeople right. and sales leaders. And that's right. okay. Um, 
you know, and maybe I would have been a, you know, a, a more of a top performer if, if I wasn't so like so much of a math nerd. Um, but at the end of the day, like these things do matter towards getting, getting to your end result. Um, I want to pause here for a moment and just mention if anybody's got any questions, feel free to throw it in the chat and I'll call on you. We can also save it for the end, as I mentioned, but if not, I'll just keep going. Um, let's keep going deeper here. So we talked a little bit about scripting. You touched on some other areas too, but let's talk about targeting. You mentioned specifically industry and personas. And I would even argue that like, if you're selling a complex product like Salesforce, it's not just one persona, but it's all the different stakeholders in the organization that could potentially influence a sale. Could you talk a little bit more about how you look at that with the reps and the leaders that you work with? I'm not sure I'm understanding the question, how I look at personas in, in a targeting. Salesforce. Targeting. Yeah. How you identify best practices in targeting. Got it. So basically, well, one, like, again, if there's already customers in place, this is where I do my customer interviews, right? I'm coming in and asking those types of questions. Who got involved in the deal and when, right? To understand how they buy, right? I want to very quickly understand how people in an industry buy the product, but then I segment them into a few different buckets, right? So I, I do my personas a little bit differently. A lot of times people do personas based off titles, right? Like director, VP, I, I use mine differently. I have the user bucket who uses the product. I have the benefitor bucket who benefits from using the product. And then I have the decision maker bucket who decides what product to use, right? Because there's all sorts of different ways to approach them, right? The decision maker, right? But if they are the decision maker, right? Eddie's the decision maker, but Eddie's not a user. I need to get some users involved because there's going to be a gap. Same as the other way of like, all right, I'm talking to users, right? Because they're a champion and they get it because they'll use the product, but they're not a benefiter or they're not a decision maker. So I've put them into those buckets. But to your point, this is a place where I want RevOps to get involved. Look at all the deals. What personas, when involved, close the highest? What titles, what buckets, right? That to me, again, is a pattern of like, hey, when we get someone in the C-suite, we close at 70%. That's a pattern, right? That we can pick up on and go with. So I bucket them there and then we go low for information, mid for insight, high for influence. So this is how I do targeting is you go low for information, right? This is where you tend to be able to target users of like, hey, do you have something like so simple, y'all? If you sell a product, whatever, email automation, bad example, but you get it. Go reach out to seven or eight salespeople and go, hey, do y'all got an email automation tool? Info, that's it. All we need to know is do they have something or not, right? How many emails do you send out per day, right? You go low for information because there tends to be more people there, but now we can learn. So I have info. I know you don't have a tool and I know you're sending 70 emails per day. Well, now I can go middle for insight. I can provide insights and say, hey, your team is kind of operating in this form or fashion. There's actually other companies that have done this sort of thing too. There might be a way to amplify the results or to save them time. Like, can I share some of these insights with you? See if it might be worth a conversation. Then I can take those insights and go high for influence. By the time you're talking to people at the top, you need to be talking to them about their business, not about your product. And the only way you can do that is if you went low and middle for insight. So that's how I do my personas is like, who can I get info from? Users. Who can I provide insights to? 
tend to be the benefiters, right? Like a manager benefits from their team using like sales loft or an outreach. It doesn't mean they use it per se, but they benefit from it to get the influence from the decision maker. So do you advocate always starting at the bottom and working your way up as opposed to the opposite? Yes. It's interesting. Uh, we talked a lot about this when I worked at Salesforce and, you know, if you, I can't draw a chart here, but you could draw it like a roller coaster and whether you start at the top or the bottom, you're going up and down. And what I really loved about this is it's very in line with what you just shared in that if you're an executive at a company, put yourself in their shoes for a moment at the end of the day, like I'm running my company, I'm just trying to figure out how do we, how do we get to our target? How do we produce more? And there are a million things that I don't understand about what's going on with my team on a day-to-day basis. I don't have the time to ask every necessary question. So if somebody wants to operate as a free consultant and come into my company with their subject matter expertise and say, I'm going to do that work for you. I know like the problem I'm looking for, and I'm going to go talk to your people. Not that I would necessarily ask someone to do this, but that's what salespeople do, right? So they get their foot in the door and they, they have those interviews with the salespeople and the managers, and they come to me with a real problem. That's incredibly valuable. However, the challenge I do see with that is, is what if that problem doesn't align with my priorities? Because it's like, I've got a million problems. I've only got the ability to focus on a few at a time. Um, how do you advocate handling that? Right. This is more of a sales question than an ops question, but you got me curious. Well, that's our job as the salespeople is to connect those dots. If I understand what's actually happening with your business, that is my job, is to convey a message, to your earlier point, convey a story, right? Write the movie of why this is or should be a priority. Because the flip side is also true. If it's not, if what I learn about this company is not like a big deal, that to me is when something's not qualified. There's not a large problem here for us to solve. And I can't seem to connect the dots in any way to make this feel like a bigger deal. That's something where I probably pull back from more, right? So that's that's our job as salespeople is to make that story, to craft it, to make it an actual priority, something that they feel like fixing. But it also, and you know this, man, like if you've ever bought, if you've bought a software tool, you have to convince yourself after the fact that it's a priority. Whereas if the seller presented it to you and said, look, here's where you're at now. Here's where you're trying to go. Here's how it fills the gap. Here's what will continue if you don't do something. Here's what will happen if you do do something. Here's where you're trying to go. And we think we can make this happen for you. Oh, well, okay. Right? Like, all right, I understand it. I see the pros and cons. I see where this could go. I see the pros of not, the pros of not. Here we go. Let's make a decision. We can, we can help them buy so much better than we do. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. I think I was thinking of it more from the perspective of early stage prospecting, not necessarily like running a deal cycle. And like, as an example, let's say you're like, wow, I have an ability to like help you grow revenue by like 10%. And the CEO is sitting there thinking, you know, I'm trying to sell this company next month. All I give a shit about is like increasing my bottom line. The last thing I'm doing is spending more money right now. Nobody knows this, but all I'm trying to do is figure out how I can like close this deal and sell the company. And as a sales rep, I literally had those conversations with CEOs. Right. Um, I actually really oddly enough, I had one CEO that was like, I need to buy all the Salesforce stuff that I can get because I'm no longer going to be the CEO and I won't have the ability to make this decision next month. And he was like a huge Salesforce geek, which I just thought was hilarious, but like everybody's got these different priorities as leaders. Um, and anyway, 
if I keep going down this rabbit hole, this is going to become like a sales conversation and not like a leadership and ops conversation, but I'm really enjoying your perspective on this. So um, how about planning? I just want to kind of keep like peeling the onion back here because I think there's so much value. What is your process? And what I love about your answers are they're so process oriented. Like it's clear that you literally have a document with bullet points on like how you do each of these things. And I love that. What is your process for helping to uncover what's working best in an organization with the best reps for planning? For planning like targets or planning like a quarter? Like, Sorry, I'm just ripping off of your post from like a week ago. Yeah. Specifically, you talked about their preparation for demos, calls, the way they prepare prepare for their day. Yeah, yeah. So I mean that that's where right again back to the difference between like rev ops and managers. Like that has to come from managers, right? Is that observation, right? Looking at those things. What do they do versus what do they say they do, right? Observing, right? This is just one again that managers don't spend enough time doing, right? Observe, watch. Oh, but KD, we're remote. Yeah, and we have this amazing tool called Zoom. Like they can show you their screen, right? You can watch how they do things and what they, they do, right? So that's a big part of it is like, how do they prepare? And even then, what's funny enough is you can tell how someone prepared for a call oftentimes by listening for the call, right? If I listen, the questions that you're asking Lead me to believe what you prepared for and the statements you're making. Let me know how you prepared for that call. So, Eddie, I see you've been there for about three years now. What's been the biggest change over the last three years? I know for a fact that you looked up how long that person had been in that role. I can tell how you prep based off how you run the call. Right. So those those are, again, those are the things that I'm looking for is like, what are the things they say differently? What are the things they get the prospect to say differently? You can spot it, right? People talk about the art or science or you can't replicate top performers. You can. I can't get everyone to 100% of the Brandons, but give me two months with the Brandon, I can figure out how to get everybody to 80% of a Brandon based off what they do and how they do it. And that's how you build the coaching plans, the practice plans, the libraries, those scorecards, everything else. Well, what's been really eye-opening for me is since I left Salesforce, I've worked with Salesforce AEs closing deals, and I have been on hundreds, if not thousands of calls. And oftentimes they'll share their quip notes with me and I'll look at them and I'm like, this is literally a script. They're literally going like question by question by question. And most of the reps I've been working with are more junior than where I was at and where Brandon was at, uh, at the company. And it's like, they're following the same playbook. They're asking the same questions and it's not a bad thing. Like I'm looking at it and I'm like, wow. This person's dialed in, everybody approaches a little differently, but they're not missing the big steps because of that. Right. That's, that's the thing is there's the big things, the little things. That's what separates the greats from the rest. That's what separates, you know, elite from excellent, right? Like those are the little things, but the big things you can teach and you can document and you can build a process around. You really can. I want to turn this over to a question. Um, Steve, is it Teresi? If I'm pronouncing that correctly, probably with a terrible accent. Steve, do you want to turn your uh, camera and mic on and ask your question? Yeah, yeah, no problem. Thanks so much for uh, for doing this, guys. Um, I think, uh, you know, I, in general, I think you guys brought up a great point of, um, you know, RevOps is kind of 
spending all this time while sales is selling, getting these insights, like trying to understand the patterns, trying to answer the questions that nobody else is really thinking about or, or has the time to answer. I think when you get the answers, right, that's, that's the challenge of like, okay, I kind of understand what's going on now. How do I bubble that up the right way? How do I get that operationally um, over to the right people and then make sure that that trickles down to all of the different salespeople underneath sales leadership, right? Because it's kind of like, you're over here and, and like, I'm just curious in your own personal experiences. And um, obviously if you're at a big company like Salesforce, that's much more um, complicated from a hierarchy standpoint, as opposed to like being at a small startup, but you know, just, yeah, just curious in general there. Um, I love the conversation by the way. Thanks. Yeah. Kevin, I'll let you feel this if you want. So what's funny about that, I'm smiling because that's actually where selling actually comes into play. Right. So what I see sometimes happen with with RevOps or BizOps is like they'll identify something and oh boy, do they get excited about it. Right? They're like, oh, I found out that our, our left handed reps sell 13 percent more than our right handed reps. Right. It'll be some sort of like thing there. What tends to miss is, again, to my earlier point, is oftentimes they don't connect the dots internally on why it should be a priority. Right. What's the narrative? What's the story? Here's what I've identified. The what. Here's why it matters. The why. Here's the impact it's having. If we could get close rates from 16% to 18% by moving away from pitching to this industry, the industry, this is what that could mean on the bottom line. How does this stack in your priorities? That story is how you help things get all the way up and then all the way back down when internally the impact is understood, right? That's what I see miss a lot from, from RevOps is like, okay, I got the what, the why is missing, but the impact is almost always missing. And when I not even push back, when I ask for the impact, it'll come back and like, yeah, this would lead to, you know, 200K additional this year. I go 200K additional on the year. Do you understand that I'm trying to hit 42 million this year? Can you find me a $2 million lever, right? So that would be my advice, man, is like, you know, when you find something, craft the narrative. Four to five slides. Here's what it is, why it matters, the impact if we can fix it, and what we've identified as some of those levers that tends to do a better job to help the sales leader prioritize it. Because the flip side is also true. Y'all find something, but it doesn't sound like a big deal to me. You're like, ah, whatever. You're like, no, look, dude, the difference between our top and the rest, if we move these leads over to this individual, it's a 4X lift in revenue. Like, yeah, it's going to piss off these two people, 4X revenue over here. And you go, oh, right? So it's that impact that helps me prioritize. Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, and I really love Kevin. I would add to this, like when I'm coaching my team, I'm always saying, imagine that you go into the meeting with the executive and they ask, so what? Like, why should I care about this? Secondly, how does this impact the bottom line? And then thirdly, where does this stack rank in your order of priorities? And maybe I'm speaking ideal state again, but one of the things that we advocate for is having a revenue operations roadmap where we've literally outlined the priorities for the team, specifically the go-to-market team. We've aligned what we're doing in RevOps with that. We even add in the metrics. How do we define success? So if you think about this like OKRs, which are objectives and key results, this is a strategy planning framework. And the idea is, is that we understand that our objective is to grow revenue by 2x. 
And we're going to have initiatives to do that. And some of those initiatives are going to be things for the revenue team, like hiring more salespeople, but other initiatives will be things for the RevOps team. And if you actually have that right in front of you, it's a lot easier to understand the answers to those questions, because as you go into the meeting with leadership, you're already sort of like pre-equipped to know, here are the priorities, here are the specific results we're trying to achieve. And this is why the thing that I'm talking to you about today matters. I'm going to jump on that one too, because I'm having this conversation right now with a company. And for whatever reason, RevOps and sales aren't always on the same page, which I find is interesting, right? Where revenue operations is there to help sales achieve what those goals are. And so often in companies, there's complete misalignment there. This is the sales OKRs, RevOps how are you supporting these OKRs? Oh, well, no, we're optimizing opportunity fields. Great. How, how, which OKR does that attach to, right? Like it's that attachment, right? That I think is so important where it starts with what are the revenue? And also, by the way, I'll call this out. This is the difference between biz ops and rev ops, in my opinion is like biz ops tends to work on the whole business. Rev ops to me is revenue focused. Your OKRs are directly attached to my OKRs. And if they're not, what are we doing here? Great plug for our next show, by the way, which is going to be titled, you know, WTF is biz ops. There we go. Uh, with uh, Rachel Najan, who I think you know, although I don't yeah, know. I was just, just going to write, I was like, oh, if you need someone, I got someone. So that's perfect. Good. Yeah. Um, Steve, I saw you just turn your camera off, but I hope we answered your question. If not, I'd open it back up to you. Cool. Well, let me keep rolling uh, with my questions here. So the next thing you've had, and you just made it so easy for me, Kevin, because you just put this great post out two weeks ago. And so um, you had said, how do we lever how do we identify greatness? And you listed scripting. What do they say and how do they say it? You also listed activity and it also kind of said, what do they say and how do they say it? And as I was reading that, um, I was thinking, well, what, what's the difference? How do you see the difference uh, between scripting and activity in the way that you're looking to measure greatness? So scripting is, you know, what they're actually saying. Activity is where they're applying it. Right. Like, so how many touches are they making? When do they make those touches? Who are they making those touches to? How often do they touch an account? Right. What is the spacing between those those touches? Is it call heavy? Is it email heavy? Are they in social? Are they using video? Right. So activity is more behavioral. Scripting is more skill. Activity is more behaviors. What are the things they're actually just doing on a day to day basis when they work their accounts? That's how I break down the, the difference there. That's great. And that's the really easy layup to plug RevOps. Um, but what specifically are you looking for there? If you're going to go in and look at activity for a given reps, like what's your playbook to, to evaluate that? Mm -hmm. So I think I just kind of mapped it out, right? So my, my playbook is, okay, first, how many, right? How many touches? Second is what channel, what channel are they using? Third is then where are those touches being applied, right? Like who are they targeting those touches to? right? Or I'm looking at the response of those touches, right? Like this is sometimes where you get to the next metric, like I'm making a lot of calls, but like, what's that connect rate? All right. I'm having a lot of conversation. What's that conversion rate? So again, I'm getting now into another 
metric that is now skill-based versus activity-based. Um, but then that's also then when we get into pipeline, right? Like what, how often are they touching their pipeline? How long do they let a deal go before they touch it again, right? So those are the things that I'm looking for. And activity is always the foundation of ownership in my orgs, right? So like if you're not working an account, you don't own it, period, right? I do not care, right? Ownership to me has nothing to do with territories. It has nothing to do with a vertical. If you aren't working an account, you don't own that account. If you're not working your pipeline, you don't own that pipeline. And I had up four grabs reports built for all of my orcs. It's an open pipeline, but it hasn't been touched in 45 days and does not have an open task on it. Up for grabs. Love it. You know, this is a separate topic, but like we see so many companies struggle with this. And it's like, if you just have very clear rules of engagement, it simplifies things so much. Like this idea of one rep arguing with another rep over whose account something is, is like such an incredible waste of resources. Yeah, it's, it's, and those conversations are rare in my orgs because it comes down to activity being logged. Oh, I called him. I just forgot to log it. Cool. You won't yep. make that mistake again, will you? Because you just lost out on five grand. Well, that's not fair. Oh, it's actually completely fair because this is fully mapped out on what was expected within your org and within your role and you did not meet those expectations. So lesson learned, hug it out. You won't make that mistake again, right? And they're like, I've, and I have reps like, oh, I'm going to build a cadence that makes sure that I follow up every 45 days. Good. That's literally what I'm trying to get you to do. That's literally what I'm trying to get you to do. So great job. In other words, you have very clear rules of engagement. Always, always between inbound, between outbound, account ownership, lead ownership, pipeline ownership, all of it documented, one page. These are our rules. These are the SLAs. Done. Love it. All right. So I want to just keep going down this path here. You just mentioned pipeline management. What are the things that you look for? around a rep's ability to manage the entire pipeline from you know qualification to close when you're doing a pipeline review what are you looking for so when i do a pipeline review there's a few things that i'm looking for first right i'm always first sorting by size right? i want to make sure that the largest you know opportunities we have all hands on deck full awareness on so i'm sorting by size first right what are my large opportunities and working down then I'm looking at last activity, right? Like, are we working our pipeline? Like, are we actively engaged? Wait, it's been two weeks since this one's been touched, right? And more often than not, I, in pipeline reviews, I don't ask a lot of why questions. I don't care why it's been two weeks. We need to address this, right? We need to make sure that we're staying in front of them. Then I'm looking at age, right? So I track strike zones. Right. It's like there's the sales cycle, but there's the strike zone. Right. Oftentimes companies, I don't think, do a good job of separating sales cycle one, sales cycle lost. They just have sales cycle. Your strike zone is when most deals close. And I want to know how much of that pipeline is within strike zone, but also what's starting to fall outside of it. Right. If our strike zone, most of our deals close within 45 days or most of our deals close within four months and you've got a significant portion of your pipeline outside of the strike zone, I already know that that, that, that forecast, that commit's going to be 
off because we're outside of the strike zone. We got to figure out what we can do to bring it back into like a reasonable like position. So that's mostly what I'm looking for is I look at the size. I look at the last activity. I look at the age. I look at that strike zone. And then we're going through call it down the sales methodology, right? Like, okay, what, are, what is the next process? Do you know, do we have act? Are we multi-threaded? No. All right. What are next steps to get multi-threaded? Well, actually, no, it's okay. We have legal next week. No, 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 no. We're not multi-threaded. What are the steps, right? So very similar to issue diagnosis for metric. There are certain things I expect to be happening stage by stage within the sales process. And that's the checklist, again, for manager and rep to be going through. You moved it to negotiation. Well, to move it to negotiation, these things need to have occurred already, have they? No, move it out of negotiation, move it back to the proper stage and go accomplish those things. Yeah, it's extremely similar to what I saw at Salesforce, where it's a very large org, but you'd have managers and their managers and their managers literally just pull up the pipeline in their segment, sort it by the highest dollar amount opportunity that was set to close in period, and just go down the line. And the bigger the deal, um, the obviously, if it's close to closure, the higher the expectation was to actually fill out the fields in Salesforce, not just for like the, the quantitative data, but also like your deal strategy, the risks seeing who else you're talking to, et cetera, et cetera. All of the sales methodology that they preach at that organization, they're reviewing that and then putting a lot of eyes on it. And then as the deal gets smaller and smaller and it's earlier in the process, it's like a stage one, stage two opportunity and it's a small transactional deal. There's a lot more leeway to say, well, I'm not gonna spend an hour updating the opportunity here, but there's zero excuse for that when you get this giant whale of a deal you're trying to close. Right. And that's why I sort by size first. I want to know there. And depending upon right how you've built your systems, you can do size in terms of like opportunity amount. But I always like the size like employee count too, because sometimes it's logged the wrong way. Wait, you have an opportunity with Salesforce. That's a 10,000 person and the amount is only five grand. What, what's happening here, right? Like there's a discrepancy between the size of the account and the size of the opportunity. And it lets me spot that very quickly. Love that. Um, I want to take this back to, you had shared something a while back that really resonated with me about helping a rep make their plan um, for the quarter of the year using their data. Tell me if that resonates or if you want me to describe it more, because I basically just want to ask you if you could share that again. Yeah. So I don't remember like the, I guess the post per se around it, but like one of the things that I see happening all the time in, you know, sometimes from RevOps too, and I'm sure you see this is applying averages to individuals. It's one of the fastest ways that companies miss their number is they apply averages to individuals. I got a 50-person team. My average close rate is 25%. So we apply that to all of our reps and all of our modeling when in reality, maybe two actually have a 25% close rate, right? And so what happens is you are building plans for people not based off their numbers. My My favorite metric to hate on is pipeline coverage. I love hating on pipeline coverage because people apply it across the board. Hey, you need three X coverage. That only works if your close rate is 33% and that your deal size is consistent. Three X coverage does not work if your close rate is 20%. 
But here we are applying a 3x coverage because that's also hilarious. Close rate is a volume metric. Pipeline coverage tends to be a value metric, right? So if my quote is 100,000, you say 3x coverage. My pipeline is 300,000. Cool, I've got my 300,000 coverage. I'm 3x coverage. But I only have four deals in my pipeline and my close rate is 20%. Do I get to my number? Yeah, I love that. Um, the other thing that you had shared in this post that really resonated with me was getting the rep involved in making those numbers. And so I might just end up sharing everything that you said, but basically you walk through a scenario where you sit down with the rep. Um, and if it jogs the memory, I think your example was a female rep and you're talking to her and you're saying, okay, here are your current rates. This is how many calls you're making. This is how many meetings you're booking. This is how much pipeline you're generating. This is your closed rate. Here's what you're closing. Um, what number do you want to get to? Um, and she says, well, I want to be here. And you say, okay, well, if in order for you to get there based on these current numbers, you'd have to make, you know, 200 calls a day. Um, that might be difficult. How would you like to approach this? And I'll try to leave, if there's anything left for you to add, I'll try to try to leave it for you. But I just thought that was such a brilliant share. Well, I mean, one is getting to their goal first, right? Of like, what do they want to hit? Not quota, what do they want to hit? And I would go even deeper, like, well, why do they want to hit that, right? Well, I want to hit here. Love it. Why is that the number for you? What will that allow you to do? What will change in your life if you're able to accomplish that number? But then, yes, this is how I'm getting buy-in to coaching. Where it's like, look, either we make 200 calls a day or we got to improve our connect rate. Which would you like to do? Now, there's some choices. You can brute force it or we can get better, right? Because, you know, one of the posts that, you know, always gets the people fired up right? Because they like to take it however they so choose. You might have even jumped on this one, right? But how I don't like the quote of, you know, hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. I definitely jumped on that, right? It's not the truth, right? If you're three times better than me at something, how much harder do I have to work to beat you, right? The multiples in skill are way higher than the multiples in work ethic because you can only work so much. But if you're three times better than me, skill, I have to work a minimum of four times harder to beat you. That's that 200 dial mark. It means there's a skill discrepancy there. If we can build the skill up, you actually have to do it less to get to the same number. And that's how I get buy into coaching is saying, hey, in order to bring these activity expectations now, we need to get better. Can we work on that together? Oh, well, Eddie doesn't make 200 dials a day. Why do I have to? Eddie is better. And in, you know, the, the culture in, you know, corporate and in schools is we've gotten away from this idea of people being better. We try to treat everybody the same. Everybody's even. That is not the truth. Someone's better at something. They don't have to do as much of it to get the same result. They have earned that. You need to increase your skill level to get to that level. Yeah. I love that so much. And, you know, I'm always trying to work on improving my skills, but I think as an entrepreneur, the big thing I'm thinking about is leverage. Mm -hmm. The reason I'm doing a podcast today, I imagine the reason you do a podcast as well is because you're trying to lever up the skills that you have because the best salesperson in the world could not compete with us. If we had a million followers on our podcast, like you can't out cold call that. Right. And that's a skill That's a skill and it's prioritization or focus on the right things, 
right? We could be just slanging cold calls right now. And in this one hour, we could make 14 to 15 cold calls, or this is going to be listened to by 10,000 people over the next 18 months. That's leverage, right? And it's prioritization. We took this hour to do something that will last beyond us, not just the manual making of a call. And you, my friend, have achieved a lot of leverage. I see you everywhere. Not right now. I'm on a detox right now. So I haven't posted anything in December. And that is on purpose. I saw that. I got a little panic attack yesterday. I'm like, ah, he's on 8 a.m. every single day. And I'm like, wait, wait, he hasn't posted in two weeks. Are we not having our event tomorrow? And then you comment and I'm like, okay, thank God. Just not not posting, right? Like still commenting, still engaging, you know, here or there, but just a complete detox in, in content for December and we'll ramp it back up in Jan. I think that's okay. It can be, um, it's a very double-edged sword. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, with all of that, I think that I'm sort of at the end of my questions. I think this was amazing. You walked this through soup to nuts, the process from like the initial cold call and scripting all the way to like pipeline management and closing deals. Um, you talked about how you leverage quantitative data. You talked about the more qualitative data. You talked about how and when you actually go in and interview people or talk to them or listen to calls or read the calls. Um, And I think we've covered it. Unless there's anything that you want to add, I've got nothing left. Oh, my man. I think we did it. I think we did it. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, And thank you, Sarah, for helping me produce this. And thank you to our audience for joining.